Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse Podcast. I'm Clinton DeFrance. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, please visit vbvpodcast.com or you can communicate with us by writing me at vbvpodcast at gmail.com. We're going to be reading today from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, I will be reading from the New American Standard Version, 1995 update. I'm beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Some of the richest teaching to be found in all the Bible regarding God's eternal purpose is given by the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. And he lays the foundation for that teaching in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, where he offers something like a poem, a hymn of praise to God, celebrating the work of redemption. I say it is something like a poem because if you read it, you will easily see that it lacks the syntactical features of poetry. But there are indications that a poem was behind this text, and perhaps Paul adapted it for his purposes here. There is a poetic structure to what Paul says and how he says it. Three times in verses 6, 12, and 14, there is a repeated phrase, to the praise of his glory, which seems to function like a refrain or chorus, marking the end of three stanzas and highlighting the purpose of the work of redemption. God has done what he has done, and he is doing what he is doing to the praise of his glory. When the content of those stanzas preceding that refrain is examined, one finds that each stanza focuses on the work of each person in the Holy Trinity. Verses 3-6 through six celebrate the work of the Father in redemption. 
verses 4 through 12 celebrate the work of Jesus Christ the Son, and verses 13 and 14 celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit. I call this the work of redemption, which is a word used by Paul in the text on which we will focus in this study, Ephesians 1.7. But what exactly is redemption? For modern Christians, this is probably a purely religious or theological word, and it might be thought of as merely a synonym for salvation, rescuing someone from a dangerous or perilous situation. But we should be careful not to suppose, lest we impose our cultural understandings on the text of Scripture. Instead, we need to try to understand how words which men were moved to use by the Holy Spirit at a certain time and place were understood in that time and that place. I'm afraid that most Christians today think of the story of the Bible as something like this. Human beings wound up in a bad and dangerous situation, but God happened to see what was going on, and because of his loving nature, he rescued us and brought us out of that situation, so now we are secure and can live in peace. I'm not saying that anything of what I have just expressed is utterly false, but I think it is an inadequate conception of the Bible story because it focuses primarily on humans and only secondarily on God. And it suggests that the chief end of the Bible story is security for humans, while Paul tells us that the chief end of the Bible story is the praise of God's glory. Understanding the concept of redemption will help us get a better orientation in respect to these matters. The word redemption, in the world of the Bible, carried the idea of ownership through purchase, and especially the idea of buying back something that was sold into the possession of another. Remember that the church was born out of the history and culture of Israel. The Apostle Paul was himself Jewish and always spoke of God within that context. Ancient Israel was a tribal and agricultural society in which the life of an individual was dependent on his relationship to the family unit and on his possession of lands which were jealously guarded for the sake of future generations. The most basic family unit was called the Father's House, and was led by the patriarch, whose responsibility it was to protect and preserve the family, including their landholdings. Life was difficult in that world in ways that we, in modern America, could scarcely imagine. Basic staples were not readily available. They could not be purchased at a grocery store. They had to be grown and raised— And because there was nothing like modern social programs, people who found themselves lacking the necessities of life or resources to acquire them were in very dire circumstances. Sometimes a person who was driven to poverty, perhaps by his own bad decisions or perhaps by something accidental, would sell himself and perhaps even others from his household into slavery. Or he might sell his family properties and begin to live on them as a mere tenant, rather than an owner. This was preferable to death, but it was a dishonorable and disordered condition. And when things like this happened in that culture, it was the role of the patriarch to rescue that family member 
by purchasing them or their lands or both back from whatever bondage they had fallen into and securing their freedom so that they could once again occupy a productive place in the father's house and be restored to dignity and honor. There are stories like this all over the Old Testament, and many of the laws in the Mosaic legal code have to do with managing this dynamic. However, the ultimate story of redemption in the Old Testament is the story of God and Israel. You will recall that Israel had gone into Egypt seeking relief from a famine, and while there they had become slaves to the Egyptians. God redeemed Israel from that slavery, and in so doing he secured their freedom from bondage. But not only that, he secured his own personal ownership of them for himself. It is very important to understand that in this system, the redemption did not result in absolute autonomy for the redeemed person. It was regarded as the purchase of freedom, but that is not what they meant by freedom. Rather, the redeemed now had obligations to the Redeemer. The redeemed had been purchased into the household of the Redeemer, and the Redeemer had ownership of the redeemed. It is necessary for us to understand how all of that worked because God used this arrangement to explain what he was doing with Israel and ultimately what he would do with humanity. After he redeemed them, God told Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. Exodus 6, 7, 29, 45. Leviticus 26.12, Deuteronomy 29.13. And that was much more than a comment about their cultural beliefs. It was a statement of their identity. As a consequence of this redemption, God gave them a law, a standard of behavior by which they were to interact with him and with each other and with everything and everyone else. And he could expect them to follow this law because they were his people. Furthermore, as a consequence of this redemption, these people entered into a covenant with God and became the beneficiaries of his protection and care and swore to him their loyalty and allegiance. The Exodus event in which the redemption of Israel took place is the defining moment and centerpiece of the whole Old Testament story. And it is significant that when the first Christians told the story of Jesus, they used the motifs and ideas and images of the Exodus to portray the work of Christ. John the Baptizer called Jesus the Lamb of God in John 1.29, and this connected him with the Passover Lamb, whose death and blood could properly be called the price which redeemed Israel from Egyptian slavery. In fact, those firstborn sons whose lives were spared during the Passover were said to belong to God in a special way because of that event, Numbers 3 and 13. And the Apostle Peter says that Christians have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Paul says, in keeping with the historic idea of redemption, that God purchased the church with his own blood, Acts 20 and 28, and that as a consequence, you, in the original language, this is a plural you, like y'all, 
and speaks of the collective church or community of the redeemed, he says, You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We will have more to say about redemption in a moment, but this brings us to the death or blood of Jesus. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, the text we're going to be considering, that in Christ we have redemption through his blood. When the Bible talks about the blood of Christ, this is figurative language for his death. There was nothing magical about the substance of Christ's physical blood, which would have caused a person to have any meaningful spiritual experience if they had somehow touched it or encountered it. But the Bible describes Christ's death in those terms by describing the event which brought it about. His blood was poured out, his life was cut off, and that had a meaningful spiritual impact on the world. Now, the impact of Jesus' death is traditionally referred to as the atonement in Christian theology. Atonement is a word used in the Old Testament to describe one of the features of the sacrificial system set up under Moses. The precise term is not used in the New Testament, though it is likely that some New Testament words are used with reference to the same ideas. What's important for us now in this study is that the atonement speaks of why Jesus died and what his death accomplished. There is an additional question about for whom Jesus died. Some people believe that he died only for a select group and others that he died for all humanity. Without getting into the details of that controversy, I believe that passages like 1 John 2, 1 and 2 make it clear that the death of Christ had some impact on the whole world and not Christians only. Namely, that it made the redemption of the whole world a potentiality, yet the actual experience of it is conditioned on the stipulation which God has laid out for receiving the benefits of Christ's death personally, specifically faith in him. As Paul says in Romans 1 and 17, it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. Yet the major issues which have divided Christians regarding the doctrine of the atonement have to do with why it was necessary and what it accomplished. It is a terrible tragedy, I think, that the blood of Jesus, which, as we sometimes sing, has made us one, has become an issue of such heated and bitter contention between those who claim to know its power. I do not believe that this glorifies God, and I would suggest that it is largely due to the human tendency to speculate about matters which have been left a mystery to them. And I further suggest that most of the time that is a tendency we should resist arising from the flesh rather than from the Spirit of God. Now, I'm going to name some of the theories that have been formed over the years regarding the atonement and offer a brief comment to help us distinguish between them. First, there is the substitution theory. This states that when Jesus died on the cross, the sins of all those for whom he died were somehow transferred into him, and he consequently became the object of God's wrath and judgment. Thus, 
he was spiritually forsaken by God and actually experienced hell in addition to the physical agonies of crucifixion. And in doing this, Jesus completely paid the penalty that would have otherwise been due to sinners. Second, there is the ransom theory. This is somewhat of an opposite to the substitution theory. It denies that it was God's wrath that moved Jesus to die, but rather God's loving concern to pay a ransom to the devil on behalf of humanity. Uh, These people, the advocates of this theory, say that God offered Jesus to the devil in exchange for the human race, and the devil accepted, thinking that was a good deal. But he was tricked. Because after three days, he found that death could not hold Jesus as it did other men. He was raised up in immortality, and Satan wound up with a total loss. Third, there is the cosmic victory theory, that on the cross, or perhaps after his death in the Hadean realm, Jesus took part in an invisible battle with Satan— and the forces of darkness, and he defeated them in his death and resurrection and broke their power over the earth. Fourth, there is the moral example theory, which might be considered the theory of theological liberalism, that Jesus saved humanity merely by providing the highest and best moral example ever shown to lay down his life for his friends. Finally, there is the moral government theory, which states that Jesus' death was not to show a model of love, but to vividly portray the consequences of sin so that God's moral government of the world would not be challenged by his graciousness in pardoning sinners. Now, if you were able to follow the complexities of each of those theories, you may note that there are many differences between them, but they all have this in common. None of them are taught in the Bible. To be sure, there are scriptures that at least seem to substantiate parts of each theory, and there may be some truth in most or perhaps all of them, but in every case, one who holds to any of these theories will eventually have to go outside of the scripture and offer speculative assertions about what has to be or what cannot be or what must have been in order to either justify Christ's death or explain how even such an event as it could have a significant impact in regard to the problems of the world. The biblical message is much simpler. The Bible says that Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15.3, not for God's wrath, not for the devil, not to get him into the grave so he could fight demons, not to teach us an important lesson, but for our sins. What precisely is the relationship between the death of Jesus and our sins? Well, the Bible explains it many times and in very clear terms. In John 1, 29, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God, that is a reference to the sacrifice of his life, who takes away the sin of the world. In Matthew 26, 28, He instituted the Lord's Supper, and Jesus spoke of the fruit of the vine as his blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The phrase, the forgiveness of sins, refers to the cancellation or removal of guilt so that though a man had sinned and would be convicted rightly as a sinner, 
Now his sin is gone, and he will be regarded as an innocent or just person. In Hebrews 9.26, the writer says that Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There are a few texts that speak of Christ bearing sin and even bearing sin in his own body, like Hebrews 9.28 and 1 Peter 2.24, but these need not be understood in the sense of transference. Matthew 8.17 says that when Jesus healed diseases, he bore them. And in a parallel line, the writer explains what that meant. He took them away. When the Bible says that Jesus bore our sins, it carries the same meaning. Not that they were transferred into him so that he might be pummeled by God's wrath and fury, but rather that in God's plan, by his death, Jesus took our sins away. This simple affirmation of Scripture resolves all the problems that religious theorists have worried over. It is true that God's wrath was against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Romans 1.18, and sinners are children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. That is, we would have wrath as our inheritance, but it was not necessary for Jesus to take that wrath into himself. It was only necessary for him to take away what caused it the sin of the world, and he did, through his blood. It is true that because of human sinfulness, we were in bondage to the devil, and the cosmic forces of spiritual evil had advantage over the material creation through the power of death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 talks about this, but nothing in the Bible suggests that God had to work out some duplicitous bargain with Satan to regain his control over the world. Rather, the Bible says that the sting of death is sin, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. And when Christ, by his sacrifice, took away the sin of the world, he disarmed the devil of his strongest weapon. Indeed, there is in Jesus' work at Calvary a powerful picture of divine love and divine justice. But the emphasis of the Bible writers is that Christ died so that our sins might be forgiven. What is striking to me is that when this message was preached by the apostles, their original audiences are never recorded as having responded by asking, how does this work? Instead, they asked, what shall we do? You say God has given repentance and remission of sins through Jesus? What shall we do? The apostles answered by informing them first how to secure pardon personally and actually. Repent and be baptized. Turn to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins so that your sins may be blotted out. This is the message of salvation. But the answer does not stop there. Acts 2.38 continues, And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3, 21 and, or 20 and 21, rather, says, And so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord unto the restoration of all things. The story of the Bible is not merely a story of salvation. The point is not merely to establish security for humanity. Christ died so that our sins might be forgiven, but to what end? to the end that we might be redeemed back to God. 
And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1.7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We spoke earlier of God's redemption of Israel. Israel went to Egypt looking for food that they did not have in the promised land. And while they were there, they became slaves. But God purchased their freedom and made them his own people to carry out his will in the world. But this was not merely the story of Israel. This is the story of humanity. God created humanity for himself as his image bearers to bring about his glory in creation. In the Garden of Eden, mankind went into rebellion and sin with the devil, looking for power and knowledge that they felt they did not have with God. And in sin, they have become slaves. But God has redeemed humanity through the blood of Jesus Christ. God has taken away the power that enslaved us and set us free so that we might be purchased as God's possession once again, restored to honor and dignity, and empowered to fulfill his original intention for us. But what does that look like? As we read the book of Genesis, we see a few statements in the beginning when God starts to express his plans But then humanity turns away from him, and everything spirals into chaos and corruption. God's original intention for humanity was never acted out in the life and person of Adam, but it has been in the life and person of Jesus Christ. Why has God redeemed us? Why has God forgiven our sins? Why has he made us his own people? What is God's intention for us? Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 states it plainly. So that we might be holy and blameless before him and adopted as his sons in Christ. So that we might be restored to honor in the Father's house so that we might honor him and carry out his will and facilitate it throughout his creation to the praise of his glory. So I announce to you the good news that Jesus Christ has secured the forgiveness of your sins through his blood, not merely so you can go out into the world and live as you will, but so that you can go out into the world and live as God wills. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.